I'm Sam. I'm David. And this is Trafe. Is this this is an episode? Yeah, it's been over a month. I think a month and a half since we put out a complete episode of the Trafe podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, We're sorry about this. We've we, been backlogging a bunch of interviews, trying to piece them in here and there. We have a great slew of episodes coming up. Yeah, and the first full episode we wanted to have after we came back was giving our listeners in the United States a bit of context for, I'm sure, a lot of what they've been reading about anti-Muslim violence in Quebec following uh, the shooting at the mosque in Quebec City. So we're going to get to that in, in our interview today. And to our listeners in the rest of Canada as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before we get into that, again, it has been some time. A bunch has gone on. One one thing that comes to mind is the organizing that was done by Muslim Americans after the cemetery was defaced in St. Louis, I believe. Yeah, and then in Philadelphia, and there's been all these other cities. Uh, so, yeah, so much money was raised thanks to Linda Sarsour and, and so many others. I think that was a good display of solidarity. Yeah, it has been really great to see the solidarity has been forming between the Muslim and Jewish communities right now going on in the United States with the increase in white supremacist activity. I hope the level of solidarity and support that's been extended from the Muslim community in the United States can can be returned in kind by the Jewish community. On that note, David, I know that you really wanted us to come out of the break with this particular episode and with this particular focus. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about why that is? Well, again, like we're a Jewish podcast that's based in Montreal and Quebec. Correct. And we are living in a context right now where anti-Muslim sentiment and anti-Muslim violence has been reaching extremely high levels to the point where six Muslim people were killed in a mosque in Quebec City. By a white supremacist. Yeah. And and this happened while we were on break from the podcast. So to me, it didn't really make sense to dive back into the show without mentioning this. To me, this just seemed like a conversation that should be central, which is grappling with anti-Islam violence and, and, and sentiment in the province and, and talking about where that's coming from. And and yeah, to link that up with the institutional Jewish community and think about the ways in which some of the ideas that underpin the anti-Muslim rhetoric overlap with those of the institutional Jewish community. Definitely. Um, something that we mentioned on a previous episode is that the white supremacist shooter who killed those six people, who was also very enthusiastic about far-right Zionism. It seems like we're at a particular moment where the white supremacist far-right has really noticed what we often point out, the role that far-right Zionism is playing in furthering anti-Islam sentiment and violence. Yeah. And because of this violence and the hateful rhetoric that surrounded it has been so prominent in the last couple months, it seemed significant for us to kind of deal with it head on right now. Just to give people a, a sense of what's been happening, there was an anti-Muslim bomb threat at Concordia a few weeks ago. There have been these weirdo national days of action against Islam, or David, what's the actual terminology? Oh, no, I think that's pretty accurate. Okay, it was that's, that's what it was? The fringe group that called for that national day of action, actually, while we were in New York, was uh, it was a local chapter of that group who, who made that bomb threat at Concordia against Muslim students. Yeah, so these national days of action across Canada, thankfully, a lot of Antifa and Rad folks went out to confront them. And what else am I missing here? I mean, I feel like we could list this indefinitely. Unfortunately, there's you know attacks against mosques in Montreal following the shooting. I, I feel like it's worth mentioning the rise of far-right media in Canada that's sort of accompanied the rise in far-right activist activity and organizations like Rebel Media, as they've become increasingly focused on anti-immigrant sentiment, has ballooned their subscriber base to about like 300,000 people. Mm-hmm. So right now we're at a moment where things are, are reaching sort of a fever pitch. 
And for that reason, we invited two people on the pod to talk about the context in Quebec right now. The pod? Yeah, the pod, short for podcast. Yeah, we spoke with Rana Sala, who's an activist based in Montreal. And Dania, who asked for her last name to be withheld, but is involved in uh, organizing in and around Montreal. Yeah, we were hoping to get the perspective of two Muslim activists who are based in Montreal, in Quebec, uh, given the climate that we're in right now. So this is your episode of Traif for the 24th of Adar, 5777. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dania. I'm an attorney here in Montreal. My practice is in labor law. I just finished my master's as well on gender equality and freedom of religion. First of all, thank you so much for braving this terrible snowstorm to come talk with us. Yeah, you owe me one. <laughs> Big time. <laughs> so... A lot of our listeners are based in the United States, mm -hmm. and at this point, I think a lot of them have heard about the shooting at the mosque in Quebec City, uh, but I think it, what, what's less known outside of Quebec is the political climate that led up to it. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about what that context is for people who haven't heard it before? I mean, the context is pretty long. It's It's like spanning over at least 10 years. It started off around the years 2007, 2008, with the Commission on Reasonable Accommodation, which really turned out on religious accommodation. That was a commission that went all over Quebec to kind of like get a feel of how Quebecers were feeding with religious minorities, workplace accommodation, and a lot more. There were a lot of events within that whole year that were quite uncomfortable if you happened to be Muslim, I would say specifically, because a lot of comments were being made. But even Jewish and Sikh, if you were a religious minority, following that, there were like little events happening here and there. But I would say the major one and the one that's probably been like the hardest on us all was when we had the episode with the Quebec Charter of Values in 2013, 2014, when the party in power at that time was proposing basically a bill of law which would prohibit any religious symbols being worn by public officers or even by private employees, but that were dealing with the public sector. That bill was saying no apparent religious symbols were going to be admitted except for a discrete cross. So even if that bill of law was meant to be like a debate on secularism in Quebec, the whole conversation shifted and was really about the Islamic veil being worn by Muslim women. And that was a really, really violent and heavy conversation. The attacks were daily. So that was a really tough year. Until that party were not elected for the second election. Yeah. And then we thought, okay, this is a time to breathe. But obviously so much damage uh, had happened in the past year. And there was such a, a free space for people to give their opinion. And it was not being condemned by the people in power at that time. And basically they were like welcoming these comments. And then you have probably the most traumatic of events which happened 
late January in which six people lost their lives. So we're here now. Um, just talking specifically about that time after the Charter of Values yeah. conversation, I know there was a huge spike in street attacks yeah. um, against people who appeared to be Muslim to their attackers. Yeah. And just living in, in the province of Quebec over time, did you see that, that shift happen during that time? Or was it something that was pre-existing and people just weren't seeing in the same way? Um, it was definitely pre-existent on my part. I was wearing the hijab like at that time that there was the whole commission, but I wasn't wearing it during the charter. So it's hard for me to feel that type of energy if walking around people don't identify me necessarily as a Muslim woman. But I would say from hearing from my peers, the episode with the charter was way harder on Muslim women than it was at previous times. Even one time I was walking down Park Avenue in the Mile End, which is for our listeners in America. That's like <laughs> our artsy, like liberal neighborhood, super bilingual. And I was walking with my mom in that neighborhood and the guy was just like, and she wears the veil. And he's like, you're not in a Muslim country here. Like get out, you know. So that year there were a lot of events but from what I'm hearing is that post what happened in January in Quebec, there's been a lot of attacks as well. And that Islamophobic actions have been occurring at a much more alarming rate. It seems like the conversations that happened after the attack in January mm -hmm. were not that robust. Um, it feels like whenever there's some kind of like, quote unquote, terrorist attack or someone has some yeah. link to Syria, we spend like two months in the media talking mm -hmm, about it. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't as much time. I mean, there were a few articles, but not many trying to engage with how the, this like anti-Muslim culture that's fostered in the media and yeah. by politicians directly leads to this. Yeah. I want to know if you could talk about that connection, because I think the same issue happened after the charter where clear anti-Muslim rhetoric was happening at the political level and in the media and then attacks were happening. But people tried to like mm -hmm. distinguish those two things. Yeah although they're clearly linked to each other. Yeah. It's like as if like Quebecers can't handle a conversation where they're accountable for some of the BS that's happened in the past that might have led to an environment where hate was fostered and violence was fostered and that allowed people to discriminate and denigre a community, which led eventually to someone being like, well, I don't want to see these people around me. And the attack happened. I feel like initially there was maybe like a little wave of people being like, well, we effed it up during the charter. We went too far, but that didn't last long. You know, they're already trying to propose another bill that would prohibit religious signs for like teachers. It's like, why are we going there again? Like, why are we having these old debates? And for me, a part of it is just, I'm sorry to the listeners, but like white fragility. It's like people can't handle these conversations. And even Dalila Wadap uh, went on Tout le monde en parle. And you, can you explain that show yeah, to our US? That's like, that's like a big show in Quebec where about a million Quebecers tune in every Sunday night. Basically, a big talk show that goes on for like either two, three hours and Obviously, following what had happened, they had invited Dalila Wada, which is a veiled wearing girl, and two other panelists to kind of discuss what was happening. Dalila Wada was saying that the Parti Québécois is a xenophobic party and they should feel accountable to a certain degree for the environment that they created back in 2013 and it's been lingering on until 2017. 
in any case, one of the members or ex-members of the party was present at the show and she just could not believe it. She was so hurt. And it's like, I just, I, I they can't even recognize that the words they've spoken, the bills they tried to pass, there's a weight to that. And we're feeling the consequences of the weight. Have you noticed sort of before the charter to now changes on the street? Do you notice it? Do you feel a difference? I noticed me personally walking now it's harder because people people don't even know where I come from like people have a really hard time I'm a hybrid girl for <laughs> listeners and it's hard to tell exactly where I'm from and so people are just confused in general and because of that maybe something that I've noticed is that people talk to me as if I'm not part of somewhere so I hear stuff like at my workplace people talking about certain communities thinking I'm not part of that community or what I see is a lot of dismissal of racism um so I remember last year I was maybe at work and at that time there was like a coverage from one of the journals here that had been called out by a lot of communities for uh, being racist and then all the white colleagues are like <laughs> that's exaggerated so a lot of dismissal, that's what I see. But me walking down a street, people don't identify me right now to belonging you know, to the Muslim community. I guess just to add a second part to this question, do you feel like the discourse has changed? Like you talked about the, the Tout le monde en parle interview a couple months ago or last month. Um, yeah. Do you think that the language around Islam and Muslims, particularly in the context of all the Trump stuff and migrants from Syria, like, do you feel, where do you feel like the, the discourse is at? I honestly believed that post-attack, since it was such a blow, like we had never seen, I really believed all of us would question like the way we speak to one another and like what has happened in the past. But I really feel, feel like maybe three weeks a month in it just came back to what it was and you see articles that you think would be positive or like investigations being done on like the rate of islamophobia in canada and you just see like a bunch of trolls commenting and those are real life people so i had a hope to see a difference i'm not sure it'll exactly happen i'm holding our governments really accountable to try to shift that conversation so i am happy that the liberal party for example is proposing you know it's symbolic but like a motion against islamophobia so you start naming it you start naming realities as they happen i mean i mean one effect it seems to have had unfortunately is really emboldening white supremacists yeah um, like i think it was a week after the shooting or the pq was arguing in the assembly for a veil ban again exactly like you had just recently in toronto the rebel like a far-right media organization in canada had a rally opposing a pretty toothless bill just condemning islamophobia you know the bomb threat in concordia recently exactly attacks on mosques are increasing yep. like what do, what do you make of, of this far-right organizing that's that's been happening in the wake of this i don't know what i make of it to be honest just that we need to mobilize and stay awake and unite keep our communities alive and solidify alliances with other communities and we're gonna go through very hard times and not just the muslim community but a lot of different communities in canada in the united states and you know, throughout the world. 
All right. I'm going to try to end this on a somewhat positive note. Go um, for it. We have a segment on our show. It's called Shkoyach. Yep. And it's a Yiddish word, and it, it, it kind of means like big ups or props or giving appreciation to. And normally on each show, we kind of do that. You, you can give to a person, like an activist group, an event, a song, mm-hmm. something that you feel like you want to like give a shout out to. Right. Do you have a particular shkoyach in mind? <laughs> uh, I got quite a few. I, there are so many giving so much of their time trying to combat all these forms of discrimination, Islamophobia, racism, sexism. So big up to a girl like Bushra Manai, Narjas Mustafa, Dalila Wada, you know, just that they keep struggling and trying to stay awake and that they bear the burden of a lot of a lot of what's happening. So shout out to my Montreal people, you know, working hard. Shalom Aleichem, Treif and Treifers. This is LUE calling from occupied and unceded coastal Salish territory. I've been thinking about assimilation and resistance to it. And recently I was arrested at Standing Rock. And I had this moment where I was sitting on the ground handcuffed when a friend spoke to one of the elders who was also being arrested. And I remember my friend saying, thanks for inviting me to be a part of this struggle. And to which the elder replied, thanks for being a traitor to whiteness. This idea of betraying whiteness got me thinking about Jewish anti-assimilationism. And I view this term anti-assimilation as synonymous with being against society, which I feel Jews have never fit into, and to which society has used assimilation to destroy Yiddishkeit. As a queer, non-binary, anarchist Jew who is opposed to and fits neither in society nor with traditional Jews, I have asked myself and my friends this question of how to achieve anti-assimilation. My friends' answers were to flag their Jewishness. For instance, one friend is getting a Yiddish anarchist tattoo, another wears a kippah, and I feel that there is probably more to this than just flagging. I'm curious how Trafe and other listeners feel about this, and how to be a traitor to all of assimilation, whiteness, and society. I'm excited to hear some thoughts. Deloitte Polizei, ACAB, FTP. Uh, so my name is Rana Sala. I'm a community organizer, activist, and poet. I'm currently a board member at Keeper Concordia and the Center for Gender Advocacy. I'm a former Concordia student as well, and I am here at the studio right now. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for, for coming to talk with us. I actually just wanted to start by talking a bit about how you got into activism. Is that something that you'd feel comfortable talking about? Sure. For me, I feel like as both a Muslim and a Palestinian, I was never able to escape politics wherever I went. So whether it was in the classroom, even with friends, like sometimes even interactions with friends ended up with awkward conversations surrounding what is race, conversations on gender, even Islam. Once I wore hijab, it's like random strangers would be curious. And I, I feel like I have to keep myself educated all the time. 
So yeah, I've just been kind of involved in different things. But right now, I'm mostly focused on anti-racist organizing. We, we've mentioned this before in the episode, uh, but a lot of our listeners are actually living on the other side of the border in the United States. Part of what we wanted to do with this conversation is to give people a bit of context. Mm-hmm. And before we jump into the history and, and get into what's been happening politically, it, just in terms of day-to-day life in Quebec right now, ha- have you noticed changes from earlier on or just growing up in Quebec? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that there has been a lot of fear that I've noticed just speaking to other Muslim and Arab folks. And even for myself, sometimes I feel a bit, you know, if I'm walking down the street and like I'm very visibly Muslim because I wear the hijab, there is that sense of something might happen because there have been an increase in attacks, for example, like on the streets or verbal harassment or even just like day-to-day microaggressions, for example, in the workplace or at schools. But I would definitely say that There's already been a climate of fear, not just in Quebec, but all across Canada. And this fear especially played out after 9-11. Yeah, I mean, I I think in a lot of the discourse surrounding what's happening right now, both in Quebec and the rest of Canada, there's consistent reference to what's going on in the United States as somehow being responsible. But there's also a, a unique history here, right? Like, especially in Quebec, there's a unique history to the rise of anti Muslim uh, sentiment and violence just even over the last 10 years. I'm wondering if you can maybe speak about your experience of that change just over the past several years. Um, well, in Quebec, for example, there was something called the reasonable accommodation debate from 2007. And it kind of comes on and off being proposed by Quebec politicians, specifically those from the Parti Québécois government party. So there's always conversations about how much can you quote unquote tolerate from different religious minorities. There's always the spotlight on women who wear the hijab, which is a covering of the whole body except the face and hands. Or, for example, discussion about the niqab, which is um, covering of the whole body except for the eyes. But it also led to a proposed Charter of Values in 2013 proposing that for state personnel in Quebec to not be allowed to wear hijabs or niqabs. But it also is aiming to ban, for example, the kippah also the turban for the Sikhs. And and, and I mean, what are the ways in which you think it differs from the American example or or even maybe the rest of Canada? Do you feel like it's it's different here? To be honest, I don't think it's more present here per se. It's more present whenever you have a proposed bill or a certain debate happening. But there's always been a fear, a fear of even the word Islam sometimes or even certain connotations that are associated to just Islam and Muslims. But what people don't realize is that even certain connotations that are being associated to Muslims, they are built on pre-existing stereotypes that were applied to other groups or other racialized folks throughout history. To battle Islamophobia, it's also to recognize that anti-Semitism is itself part of white supremacy anti-Semitism, like even for white Jews who benefit from white privilege in many ways, Western civilization continues to be anti-Semitic. And that's one of the reasons why far-right groups are able to still thrive and not be completely shut down. Certain mentalities about what it is to be Canadian or American or what it is to be Quebecois, these are still rooted from the foundations of both Canada and the US. And I feel like 
you can't even talk about Islamophobia or xenophobia or any other form of racism without acknowledging how that relates to settler colonialism in general. One one thing that seems to be unique about this period is the increase in far-right activity that's come out of it. At least in my lifetime, I've never seen the far-right being this active. What 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 do you make of the far-right organizing that's happening right now uh, that, that is targeting Muslim people? Um, in general, the type of <clears throat> mentalities far-right groups have, these type of mentalities already existed. Now they feel more empowered to organize. And for the past, at least the past few years, there's already been this surging hatred that just keeps going up. Both media and also government rhetoric empowers far-right groups. There's been a rhetoric ever since 9-11 about the fear of Muslim immigrants. Like immigration has now been associated with, we don't want to let in Muslim terrorists. There's also the fear of how Muslims practice their faith, even a conflation between Islam and Arabism. So it's like parts of Arab culture are mixed in and seen as Muslim. This fear of immigrants and just of the other, it's already pre-existing logic that was used towards other groups in the past. I find far-right groups who are Islamophobic, they are also anti-Semitic at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it's something that me and Sam uh, talk about in the show is the fact that sort of to our horror, uh, some of the institutional Jewish groups that are, are now mostly Zionist groups have taken a role in perpetuating Islamophobia and anti-Muslim sentiment. And in that way, we're seeing an increased alliance uh, between them and people who historically have been more anti-Semitic or been sort of at their throats. Um, the thing with Zionism is that there's, I could say, like different spectrums. So, for example, you ha- like I've come across, I'm putting in quotation marks, liberal Zionists. So for some liberal Zionists, they would be against Islamophobia. Like, hey, you know, you shouldn't label all Muslims as terrorists. That's wrong. But they're perfectly okay with Israeli settler colonialism. But then at the same time, you do have more right-wing leaning Zionists who are straight up like Islam is bad, Muslims are evil, Muslims and Arabs. It's just like everything in that region is evil. But people who denounce Islamophobia or denounce racism does not necessarily mean someone is also, let's just say, anti-colonial. Because colonialism, the way it works, not just Israeli settler colonialism, but in Canada and the US, is that you do have a bunch of quote-unquote liberal folks that are like, we believe it's wrong to judge someone based on their skin color or their religion, but they don't seem to see environmental pollution or displacement of indigenous folks as itself racist. Like they might denounce vandalization of mosques but they're not necessarily comfortable with denouncing displacement. Being anti-racist or against oppression is far more than just whether an area has received a bomb threat or there's been a shooting because violence is everywhere you go. Like that's the way systems are set up globally. Sort of getting back to the present moment, do you feel like um, just on a day-to-day basis, when you're when you're walking around the streets, when you're interacting with people, doing political work, because I know you do quite a bit, does it feel like a very different political moment? Well, I definitely feel like the far right is always looking for a time to strike. You know, it's always like a constant feeling that, okay, yesterday, let's just say, there was the bomb threat at Concordia, and then there was the Quebec City shooting, and then there was that far right rally in Montreal. 
you know based on these ongoing factors along with what the mainstream media is like that it's not going to end it's just going to get worse before it gets better during the charter debate for example there were times where if i'm walking outside and it's kind of dark i would actually put my hood on top of my hijab so i'm not identifiable even from the back if i can't see behind me that i'm muslim and it reached a point where I was told by one of my Muslim friends that at the metro at Lionel Gru, she was standing near the railing and somebody tried to push her. Since then, I never stand right near the edge. I always make sure I'm scanning my surroundings. Like all the time because I'm identifiably Muslim and sometimes I go home late and I take the metros. So that always puts me in a position where based on so much things that were happening during the charter and like just stories that I hear from different people, I'm always scanning my surroundings. It's a general climate of fear. Like I always make sure that I'm not standing near something where somebody can push me into it. It's reached that point and I've been in that mode since the charter debate period. For me, I actually never felt like things were starting to get better. Like hate crime reports, I feel like they spike up during certain periods, but I'm in regards to measuring how much has happened, not everyone necessarily reports incidences as well. Yeah, I mean, it seems part of a trend toward anti-Muslim sentiment going mainstream, you know, that it is not just in the rebel, for example, uh, in the far right or the Sun News, but it's also in like mainstream media outlets. And if we were talking 10 years ago, what would you describe as the institutions that were perpetuating those ideas then compared to now? schools is a major thing. I was in eighth grade when 9-11 happened. I wasn't even visibly Muslim then because I didn't wear hijab. But the teachers would be like, hey, who's Muslim in the class? And I was automatically questioned about these things. Oh, what do you think of 9-11? Do you guys have honor killings? Like, I don't know, there was like these inappropriate questions that I was asked by teachers, not always in front of the class, but I have been approached by teachers and asked the very same type of questions So whenever these type of debates happen among politicians, every last thing literally is based on a conversation I've had in the classroom, even when I was a teenager. Um, Or if it's not in the classroom, it's in the workplace. So I feel like it's very mainstream wherever you go that there's certain preconceived notions. So even though mainstream media and politicians might not all be as far right per se, as far right groups, the type of rhetoric implemented right after 9-11, it changed even what it meant to be left-wing or even what it meant to be liberal. I'm thinking, for example, there was already an understanding that you don't give a platform or free space for Nazis to speak. But with the U.S. elections, I even saw some of my friends who are quote-unquote white liberals all of a sudden saying that, oh, for far-right groups, far-right groups have the right to spread any rhetoric, that the concept of trying to shut down far-right groups at demonstrations, that this is infringing on freedom of speech because it doesn't infringe on your identity as a white person. Well, to end this on a lighter note, uh, we did this earlier in the show as well. We have this segment that we call shkoyach, which is this Yiddish term for sort of uh, congratulations to or something that we think is really great. And I'm just wondering if there is a thing or a person or a piece of art or or whatever it is that you would like to give a shkoyach of your own to 
awesome. just something that kind of makes me laugh. Um, you should go on YouTube and look up I'm Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley. I'm just obsessed with the video clip. I can't explain it. The video clip is just really funny for some reason. I've been obsessed with it for like the past seven years. And that's, yeah, it's just really fun. Check it out. I will do. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to, to come in and talk about this. Thank you for inviting me. Eat that bread, Pesach's coming. It's time for Shkaya. Shkaya! Shkaya. We're at it again, David. At what? Uh, Shkaya segment. Oh yeah, welcome. World renowned. If I had a, a horn that you toot at a birthday party, I would have just done that. Oh, we should get some sound effects on this show. Anyone know how to do that? Let us know. Trafepodcast at gmail.com. Okay. Pew, pew. The money would be flowing in. <laughs> Let's get down to brass tacks, as they say. Okay. Uh, Sam, what is your shkoyach for this week? Uh, my shkoyach is I need to prepare right now because I did not pull up onto the screen what <laughs> I wanted to. Sam, you're literally, you're on Jew or not Jew like 10 minutes ago looking up if Toucan Sam was really Jewish. <laughs> Why weren't you looking up what you're going to say? I neither confirm nor deny that accusation. All right. So do you want to, should I start? Nope, I'm good. I just had to like get the link on my phone. Okay, this is a two-part shkoyach. The first one mm-hmm. is me showing something to you on a phone, and you're going to have to describe it. Okay. Okay? Oh, okay. So I'm looking at uh, something that has become known on the Jewish internet in the last week as a popcorn strimal, which is, <laughs> is a strimal container, a plastic strimal container, a large plastic circular box filled with popcorn that's being worn as a strimal, a strimal <laughs> being a large hat that Hasidic Jews tend to wear, which is sort of the Purim costume of the moment. That is amazing. Have you seen this before? And I've never seen it before, but it seems it seems like the kind of costume that exists in that milieu. Oh, yeah? I'm definitely uh, not surprised to see it. I mean, I was kind of blown away. It, like, do you feel like that's in the spirit of like a creative costume? Like, he could have gone and got a pirate costume, but he decided to like put popcorn in a strimal, you know? Totally. I think it's uh, symptomatic of both the spirit of levity and of not putting a ton of time into what you're doing and just seeing what you have around the house. But he has to pop all that corn. There's a thing in the Orthodox world where like popcorn's pretty big, I've noticed, where like <laughs> small kosher shops would always have popcorn on hand. Huh. So I don't know. That's That was my take on it. I all mean, right. when I was in high school, I was at like an Orthodox high school Forum was sort of a big deal. Like the entire mm. month of Adar, there'd be like pranks on a level that I don't think I've seen at this phase in my life. Do you have any funny pranks to share? Oh, just I, I think I've mentioned this on the show in, in the past, actually. What about for people who don't remember, like <laughs> like your host? Okay, it was just stuff like like you'd come to school and you'd go into a classroom and there'd just be from like wall to wall cups of water all the way up to the rim so like you couldn't get in or like all the desks are gone or like are all outside or there's a weird animal in the room just you know what this, do you mean a weird animal like a alpaca there, well there was an or incident like a... it was before i was at the school it was people who were older than me but there was this incident where some kids got a bunch of zoo animals and brought them into the school as that a prank yeah that was not a good idea <laughs> After that, things were not as intense. Did but you there, stage a protest? I wasn't there at the time. Would you have? Probably not. I mean, at that point, I wasn't even vegetarian. Fair. Moving right along. Yeah, that was just part one, right? Uh, of course, part one. Part two, 
is kind of weird. Just in the sense that it feels like it might be an ad for audible.com. All right. I don't know how I feel about this. We're certainly not getting paid for this. But I recently got enticed by the free book deal, the one month free book deal. Oh, man. I, I was also enticed for this one book, but I downloaded it and I couldn't even find a second book I wanted to listen to. So I canceled my free membership. It's difficult. Um, Wait, what was the book you signed up for? The Stories of I.L. Parrots. Oh, okay. Read in English. And this is what ties it all in together. I um, tell people who I.L. Parrots is. He is a prominent figure in Yiddish writing. Mm-hmm. The point of my tale here is how much I've actually just enjoyed listening to these stories being read in a somewhat funny performative way by two reading stars i've actually found it very like warm and comforting to listen to these stories before bed kind of the insider jokes and the kind of like me snug the imkasid divide and just like really fleshing out that history that i'm just not exposed to on a day-to-day basis and it just feels like there's something i mean the misogyny is overwhelming Oh, wow. Um, and I've never really read much uh, of his writing. But it's just been nice for the last couple nights to listen to these stories before bed. Well, that's great. Yeah, so those are my two squares for the week. Yeah, we can just edit it so we don't mention Audible and just mention uh, JCC Audiobooks. <laughs> <laughs> Although Audible, if you want to uh, sell some ads on the podcast, just get in touch with me. I know they're owned by Amazon. All right, don't <laughs> get in touch with me. David, what square do you have for us on this fine afternoon? So my shkoyak for this week um, is sort of along the lines of the theme of this episode, which is to a series of Jewish congregations, both in Montreal and Toronto, who really stepped up after the mosque shooting happened in Quebec City. Huh. You know, we've talked not just on this show, but in previous shows, too, about like how dissatisfied we are with the institutional response to anti-Islam violence in Quebec and the rest of Canada, too. We talk a lot about it on the show, Um, but we don't actually talk a lot about grassroots Jewish responses that are great happening in Canada to this, because Mm -hmm. to be honest, they don't usually happen. Nope. But after the shooting, it did. And it really contrasted how bad the institutional response was. Um, In Montreal, you had all these different congregations coming out. They had Bek Tikva going to the Canadian Islamic Center. You had a Shari Zion congregation. I know it's Tam that it's a shul you went to. Good old Lionel Moses. Um, Oh, yeah. Actually, yeah. Lionel Moses was one of four rabbis holding a sign that said, we stand with our Muslim brothers and sisters. I mean, yeah, no, these are acts that, that I'm heartened by. And I mean, for everybody listening, it's probably very clear that the bar here is pretty low, mm-hmm. that it's gotten so bad that after a shooting, after the level of violence gets so ramped up that just going to a mosque and expressing a baseline level of solidarity is surprising. Certainly, but I think it's also relevant for us to give shkoyachs to these people and to these organizations who are doing that work, even in low bar land. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just in Montreal and Toronto. There are actually dozens of congregations that got together and went to all these different mosques across the greater Toronto area. It was really, really great to see Yeah, and I mean, it's not just giving a quote to the Canadian Jewish News. It seems like in a lot of these cases, it was on the ground, at the mosque, at a demo, at a funeral. Like like, tangible acts that, again, are not like the most extravagant things, but are much more than I guess both of us expected at this point. Yeah, and it seems like real relationships are being built. Like people, like one, one of the rabbis was saying, it's a shame that it took this to get us to be talking that we should have been here so much earlier. And that was, to me, out of everything I read, the thing that hit me the most, whereas to actually hear that from religious leaders in this city is not something I've ever heard before. Mm. And so it almost feels like people are really waking up. I mean, I don't want to be too optimistic, 
but it, this is it was really really great. No, I mean we we can only hope that these are the beginning steps of more meaningful kind of engagement and and solidarity. And and the other thing that I felt was really neat to see is that a lot of the people they were talking about weren't just rabbis. It was also just like some of the first people to show up at the mosque from these congregations were, were just people who live nearby. And, and mm. they were surprised that there wasn't more of an organized presence. Mm. Uh, so yeah, so my Shkoyach goes to actually more congregations than I can even list here. That is a rare thing to hear on Trafe Podcast. Yeah, I think this is the first time I've given a wholehearted Shkoyach to Jewish institutions in Canada. Hopefully they're listening. So that's our episode. Episode 27. For diehard Trafe listeners, that's my favorite number. For people who are interested in checking out other great shows uh, based here on CKUT, Dania is a co-host of a show called Badass Witches in English. has a different name in French that I'm uh, going to butcher if I try it. Uh, Sam, you want to take a shot? Sure, it's called Des Sorcières Comme Les Autres. Yeah, and you can go to ckut.ca to download the show and listen. So we reference a lot of uh, different political events and things that have happened in Quebec over the past 10 years over the episode. So if you want to read more about any of this or, or if we didn't do a really good job of explaining parts of it, we're going to have a lot of links in the show notes for this episode. Okay. So you can just go there and read it. That seems like great advice. All right. Um, is it even worth it to mention giving us a positive review on iTunes? If you want to. Please do. Five stars. Nice little text in the in the body. Yeah, it always helps. Um, if you have any critical feedback about this show or any others we've done, we'd, we'd really love to hear it. You can get in touch with us at travepodcast at gmail.com. And you can also get in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter, T-R-E-Y-F. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Trafe Podcast is Sam Bick. And David Zinman. A huge thanks to... Uh, thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we record this podcast under the giant cross of secularism on occupied Kanagahaga territory. Many thanks to Claire Hertig, Minister of Design, Kira Page, Social Media Consultant, Cadence O'Neill, Website Aficionado, C. Lavery, Poster Design, Sax Syndrome and So-Called for the Music, Ariana Katz for Staff Rabbiness. Um, please send us all hate mail, suggestions, commentary, questions to trafepodcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at trafe, uh, T-R-E-Y-F. More episodes soon. Thank you.
I'm Sam. I'm David. And this is... I thought you said this is Trey. Fuck. We always fuck this up. <laughs> Let's do it again. <laughs>